Welcome to the Finding Backcountry Podcast with your host, Dustin Whitwer. I am Dustin Whitwer, and this is the Finding Backcountry Podcast. Follow along on my journey of learning from the best backcountry hunters each week as we explore valuable information I use to find success in the backcountry. Let's get to the show. Yeah, this will be episode 27 of the Finding Backcountry podcast, and I've got uh, the man Jason Phelps on the line with uh, Phelps Game Calls. Jason, how you doing, man? Good, good. How are you doing? Good, good. It's, uh, I, you know, it's right in the middle of application season and stuff, and uh, that's always, it's almost more exciting than hunting, honestly. Yeah. You know, for, yeah. for some reason. It, it wasn't when I was a kid because we just were one state and, and really only one species of mule deer, uh, but now it's like... Man, it's like the Western State Roulette for us. But um, what, yeah. what do you uh, what do you have going? And just kind of, you know the you know the typical. Um, I haven't thought of a better way to do this, so we still just do the the cliche. Um, yeah, tell people where you come from and who you are and how you got into, <laughs> into yeah. hunting. Yeah, I I live in a very small town of uh, right around six hundred people here in in Southwest Washington State. Um, Pretty much everybody here is tied to logging somehow or some way besides, uh, you know, I, I personally, all my family logs, I, uh, I went to school, um, maybe I was just lazy or whatnot, but uh, <laughs> I went to school to be an engineer and then, uh, you know, took on the call. So we, I live here with my, uh, my wife and I've got two kids, eight and six year old and uh, grew up hunting and fishing. The one nice thing about living in a, a town this small is I could ride, you know, as an eight year old, my parents you know, let me ride my four-wheeler and my buddies, we'd take off, you know, up in the woods, something I'd never think of this day, you know, letting my eight-year-old, you know, ride for hours and hours, um, you know, through the, through the forest land and then, you know, come home when they were ready or when they ran out of gas, they would, you know, walk home. But, uh, no, it's, it's been nice, you know, grew up in a small town, fish hunt um, year-round and, uh, you know, or when it was open and uh, it, it's been good. Yeah. And we, we stayed here and then about 2000 early or 2009 we started playing around with you know making calls and and doing you started with the wood external cow calls and, and they kind of took off way better than we could ever expect and then a couple years later we bought some diaphragm presses and and started to, to kind of master those and um, you know over the years we've developed new products new beagle tubes new styles of diaphragms and um, here we are today and uh, you know like you had already said the word cliche, but it's so cliche. Like you, know, you hear people say, "I never thought I would be here." And to be honest, <laughs> you know, it started as a just a hobby out in the garage, and uh, never thought that we would, you know, get to where we are today. Yeah, it it seems like regardless of how it happens, man. If if these little type of businesses and or uh, you know things aren't aren't just naturally a passion or something that you would kind of be doing, you know, maybe not at this scale, obviously, but something that you would be doing for yourself anyway, or yeah. it doesn't come from some, some, you know, if, if you're out backpacking and you, you find a problem with some gear that you use and that you would be using it anyway, like it's just, just kind of goes hand in yeah. hand and seems like that's, yeah. that's the, the, one of the key ingredients to being successful. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think people's brains just work that way. Like, you're either a tinker or you'll go shop around to find it. But, you know, a lot of guys, 
you know, like myself or, you know, like a lot of us gear junkies, we'll just, you know, get out a needle and thread, so to speak, and uh, fix it up ourselves how we want it. And that's just kind of how I was. You know, I wanted to, to try to do something different, try to maybe make um, diaphragm calls more consistent, um, easier to use. And so that's kind of where we set out. Is, yeah. is I thought I could, you know, make a better wheel. Um, so to just reinvent that wheel and hopefully make some things easier. And uh, it yeah. just took off. Town of 600, be honest with me. Remember, lying is the devil. Are you a local living legend in the hunting world? At least, be honest. Um, it's we- <laughs> it's it's getting weird for me. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I coach all my kids, uh, kids sports, and you know some of the kids, the kids all grow up hunting here, and it it is getting that way, and it's uh, it, it's awkward for me. Um, but but I embrace it. You know, if hopefully I'm a good role model for the kids, it's getting weird, but. One thing I want to say about the area I would come from, due to it being, um, you know, so many loggers, how am I going to word this? The, the good elk hunters and deer hunters around here, like, I, I would take the group of hunters, the local hunters um, here, and, and, you know, send them anywhere in the West, and they're going to do okay. You know, they're, they're all loggers. They've been raised and live in the woods. Um, they're they're good, at, you know, good at hunting. And so um, on that aspect, it's kind of weird, you know, to see – a guy like myself who just grew up like everybody else and then kind of emerged more on a, on a larger scale, you know, I still have a ton of respect for all the guys that, you know, um, you know, congratulate me or shake my hand as we, as you meet them. So, um, yeah, they're, they're mutually, I just, like I said, I just happened to get lucky in, in Excel and, and, uh, you know, took my passion and, and pushed a little bit harder. seems like we're losing a lot of those, um, type of jobs that are just, you know, men are tougher than they, and women too, but, you know, it, it just seems like so many of those jobs are going away. Um, but I, I think yeah. log, logging is still one of those, you know, uh, just, you just know what type of person you're dealing with and there, there's no, oh, no, yeah. no tougher people on the planet than loggers. No, that's my, my dad's joke was always, he would always tell me when I was younger, he's like, you know, you know, the one person who's tougher than a logger and I, you know, being young, I couldn't think of the answer. I'm thinking like a, you know, crab fisherman or something he's like nope another logger you know and so it is and i'll never claim you know i grew up here but those guys are i mean they're a different breed they're they're a tough tough group of men that, that live a hard life and i'll never claim to you know to, to put my boots on and have to go do that every day that's how uh <clears throat> i had the opportunity to fight wildland fire for three years and uh yep. same same thing man i you know i i did it for three years and i hung with them um but, you know, I, I have to tip my cap to uh, the, those type of guys that, and, and, and again, girls too, plenty of, yep. plenty of female firefighters that could hike me into the ground and, and outwork me, yep. but just, just tough, uh, tough people that are earning, earning every dollar that they make. So, yeah, yeah, I was, I'm in the same boat going through college. I was able to work on a, a local DNR crew, um, while I'm firefighter for two years and, um, yeah. I, I almost felt lazy doing that because we were attached to an engine, you know, so we were just water delivery, you know, and do it. We'd, we'd scrape in a little line here or there, but it's like, even then I had a cush job in the, you know, as far as the realm of wildland firefighters go. So yeah, yeah. same, same with you. Tip my yeah. hat to the guys that are you know, doing the real, the real work. Yep. That was me. I was on a BLM, uh, you know, uh, like you said, attached to an engine. Um, but, but honestly, the, the hardest times that I ever had and the most enjoyable uh, times fighting fire was when we'd, I would go do a detail with, you know, a hand crew. Um, yep. I did a, a one month detail. It, it was supposed to be a two week detail with a hotshot crew and hotshot crews. 
are typically slammed. I mean, this was like, this is relatively early in the season. Um, we went like 13 straight days without a call. It was the worst 13 days of my firefighting career. And then last day it was like, you know, probably four 30 and we were going to be done at five. And my, my time with them was going to be done. And I had to go back to my engine. We got a call to, uh, well, somewhere up, uh, Idaho and then over to Wyoming and, it ended up being another two week, uh, two week roll with them, and it was awesome. But yeah, anyway, mad respect, and that's just that's cool stuff. Yeah. But so application season, man. Where uh, and I, l- let's be honest here. You guys make a lot of calls. You know, I was looking through your website and stuff, and I'm I'm fairly fairly familiar with with what you guys offer. We're just gonna talk about oak hunting. Like I know you guys make some deer calls and turkey calls and yeah. Is there really anything more important than elk calls, though? Come on, no, be honest. No, no, I mean, you're joking aside. No, we, I mean, I, I, I love designing those other things, but my passion, a little bit in turkey, but, you know, the wholeheartedly, um, you know, elk calls is okay. really where where I thrive, what I love to talk about, and what I love to do. So. Love it. Well, Perfect. that's right up my alley. And, and that's the thing. When I think of Jason Phelps, I think calling in big bulls. So let's just jump yeah. right into that. Where, uh, where are you applying? Uh, this year for specifically for elk tags or even, you know, just throughout the West, you do the, the multiple state thing or are you just hometown? I do. I'm starting from the South up. We're in Arizona. We're in New Mexico, um, Colorado. I, there's a few States I skip on the elk side where I'm in on the deer side, but talking elk only Colorado, um, over the counter, Nevada, we're in Wyoming. We bought a, we'll buy a point later. Um, Montana's another over-the-counter state. I don't apply for elk there, so when I want to hunt there, I'll just um, apply, and then we'll be in. I drew a good deer tag in Idaho last year, so I will uh, skip. They, they make you skip a year on the deer and elk side, so I probably won't apply for Idaho this year. But um, we're in, you know, kind of all across the all across the West. Oregon's one of those states that's a little bit unfavorable to non-residents if you weren't already in the game, and so I've kind of looked at Oregon as another one of those over-the-counter states when I'm, when I'm ready to go. But, um, you know, we, we've looked at hunting all the states, and it's one of those things I, I definitely want to hunt them all before I'm, you know, before I hang it up. But um, it's trying to strategically – there's so many places to go. And then, of course, Utah. Um, we're in every year, but we're probably still a few years away from drawing, but you never know there. Yeah. Um, do you have, uh, you know, some sort of strategy? Like, do you, do you have something in mind, or are you just like, I don't care, just I'm applying draw when I draw, or, or do you kind of have a, you know, a, yeah, break, a I have, breakdown? I have units I want to get into eventually, um, kind of know how many points they typically take. Um, where there's states like Nevada, where it just kind of, it, they run the same system that we do here in Washington, where it's really bonus point driven. You really never know when you're going to go. So I just apply for Nevada every year for a hunt. Yeah. Um, we're in like Utah, Arizona. Um, you know, I'm starting to kind of, you, know, you can kind of plan for those like Colorado. Um, where in the New Mexico and Idaho, you're just kind of like you apply every year and hope that you don't draw a good tag you know, or multiple good tags that don't overlap and, you know, create more of a logistics issue than um, being able to enjoy the hunt so we we definitely have a strategy on on everywhere we go um like this year i i'm not even going to apply for anywhere but new mexico uh, my my years kind of we're going to go back and do end of the free you know the second season mm-hmm. um and uh, i think i think my leg is going to be in colorado is what i've been told 
and then we're going to come back, I believe, to Oregon and do a wilderness hunt. Um, and so this year, knowing I was doing a bunch of over-the-counter hunts, I, I either applied for bonus points or really hard to draw tags that if I do draw, we'll, we'll figure out what we're going to scratch off the off the agenda when we get there. Talk, talk uh, briefly, talk about the, uh, the land of the free, uh, just so people understand what that was and, and then what's coming this year. Okay, yeah, I'm going to overwind a little bit kind of my history with Born and Raised and then kind of how the project went. So when we started making calls, Born and Raised, I think, had been rolling for two years, and they had got a bunch of traction right off the bat, and we had talked, and at that time they were using, you know, different alt calls, so I respected that, but we became fairly good friends, and, uh, you know, I never never pushed the door, you know, push, push on them too hard, but just let them know the door was open um, if they ever wanted to work together. And then fast forward... Uh, a couple more years in the full draw film tour, Cody Kellum, who also owns Born Raised, um, was running the full draw film tour as well. And um, I was heavily involved in that and, and sponsoring, you know, some of that and giving giveaways. And they ran their film school. Well, all of the Born and Raised crew had went to that same film school that I was invited to. Um, and, and we got to be fairly good friends. You know, it was a great time, great atmosphere. Um, really got to liking the guys. And we, we walked away from there. Uh, me and Trent specifically were in a group and said, one of these days we're going to hunt together. Um, and then fast forward two or three more years, Born and Raised was kind of, uh, they didn't take a break, but they had kind of slowed down a little bit and they, um, their, their fire kind of got rekindled and, you know, Trent was a, a timber faller and decided he didn't want to do that for us of his life. And him and Cody, Cody sold full draw film to her. And they just, they looked at each other and basically said, we're going to, we're going to do this and we're going to go. Um, and so they contacted us early on and, and, you know, the whole game plan was to hunt with different groups. So, uh, born and raised hunted with Hush and they hunted with the Elk 101 crew. They hunted with Pure Elevation, they hunted with us, um, they hunted with some guys from Onyx. And so that, that project took off last year and was a, you know, overwhelming success for them. Um, and so, uh, they're going to do it again next year. But basically the, the, the idea behind that was, um, to, to show how groups of guys that are com, you know connected by one passion of elk hunting can come together, not really know each other, and, and have a great time. Um, you know, I shoot bow brand X, they shoot bro, you know, bow brand B. Um, they're wearing this camo, I'm wearing this camo. And to, to prove that you know, just because I drive a Ford to the trailhead or a Dodge to the trailhead <laughs> and you drive a Chevy, that we can't, you know, we can't shake hands. And it's, um, I don't want to go off to, uh, you know, too far on a tangent, but um, that's yeah. one of my frustrations right now. And 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 what I love in hunting is is the brand wars. It's like really, you know, just <laughs> that same example. Why does why can we all drive different trucks and be great friends? We don't. It doesn't seem to matter. But as soon as you know, you wear two you and I wear first light, all of a sudden we can't <laughs> like each other or we can't hunt together. Um, it's just. But no, the project tried to break all of those barriers and. Um, you know, their, their sponsors and the people they work with um, were, one, you know, myself included as one of their sponsors was completely behind it, you know, yeah. um, that, that we shouldn't be divided. And so it, it's a great project and, and uh, I'm extremely excited for, for next year. Man, I, well, and that, yeah, so that, that land of the free thing was just, it caught like wildfire and it was just awesome yeah. to, to kind of follow along. Um, back to the, the brand thing and the clothing, I was just thinking as you were talking like how true that is. Um, and I find myself, um, you know, if I look at a guy in, or a girl or whatever, a hunter, and they're decked out in a, in a certain type of camouflage, it's almost to the point where we, we um, label them, oh, 
that's probably that type of a hunter or <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, this guy, he must be that type of hunter. Like, and, and yeah. everyone kind of vaguely knows what, what I'm talking about, I think, but how yeah, it's, it, it really is terrible. Um, you know, it's, it's it the is. worst, worst form of judging a book by its cover. Yeah. <laughs> no, and it, you know, and I've used a lot of it over the, the last 10 years, you know, use, using ASAT branded stuff, using first light, using Sitka and, uh, you know, the, the camel I had on never really affected the, the end result, you know, and it's, I think we, those that are true to ourselves all know that, um, you know, find something that works for you and, and you're going to be fine. Hi, man. Speaking of products and development and stuff, kind of what you're saying with your calls, like I've always had this idea and, and as soon as a thousand people from the podcast email me and say to do this, I'm going to roll with it. I had this idea for a clothing of a clothing company to just because I I love the technicality of you know first light for example like and I completely understand the importance of it but I I've always thought it would be interesting to just make a plaid like super technical but plaid you know yeah. and see if see if we could all just keep killing yeah. keep killing stuff with red and black plaid like Chuck Adams used to do yeah no my my uh, my grandpa Phelps on. Um, He's killed more animals than most any guy I'll ever know, and uh, he's never had anything on besides his, you know, red and black Filson jacket, yeah. his double knee, his double knee logging jeans, and uh, you know, it, that's just that's how he rolled. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and here I am, and you know, x amount of dollars. You know, I have more dollars than a, a pair of boots and pants, and you know, he's yeah. he's probably ever had in hunting gear. So it's yeah, it's all it's all relative. I, there's a lot of different ways to. To get to that end result, what uh, what is it about elk hunting that that gets you? What do you love about elk hunting? So I I grew up, my, nobody in my family ever arch archery elk hunting. We never we ne I never grew up calling to them. Um, it was something I just kind of took on. I was like I said, I was kind of a rat out in the woods. I was riding my bike. I was scouting, you know, all August, all September. Um, but I was still a muzzleloader rifle hunt. My seasons didn't start until mid October. Um, on the muzzleloader side, or um, you know, early November in Washington on the on the rifle side, and I'm like, there's got to be more to this. And at that time, nobody around here archery hunted. That was, you know, back in the late '90s. And, and so I bought, went to the store and bought a Primo's uh, Terminator, and and you know knew where all these elk were, and, and started calling them in. And you know, man, these things get close. This is at that time I I may have even been mistaken and said this is easy. You know, these, these things come within 20 or 30 yards. Anybody should be able to make a bow shot. And so um, that next Christmas I asked for a bow. Um, I think I was a junior in high school um, for my parents and got a bow and then really got into it. But what elk have always fascinated me, even when I muzzled and rifle hunted, just, um, you know, how tough they are, uh, the area they live in, kind of their smarts and how they could outsmart me at that point. But it was really when it took off was when I started calling to them, when I got to interact. Um, I make a sound, they respond to me. They make a sound, I respond to them and get a response. Um, it was that cat-and-mouse game, and um, it, it was the ability to kind of, uh, quote-unquote, control nature for you know, for a, a little segment in time um, to trick them, to fool them. And so it was that interaction that really got me hooked, um, you know, and um, chasing bugles and just trying to figure them out. Like, the, the engineering side of my brain like, there should be, if they do this, there should be, uh, you know, an option, A, I should do A. And then if they do this, maybe we need to go to B. And, you know, like, trying to reduce it down to a, a fail-proof, um, you know, strategy. 
And uh, so I've just fell in love with that. And then 20 years later, I've realized there is no right answer every time. It's more of a, you know, the more, if I'm not getting beat uh, multiple times in a hunting season, you know, I'm probably not hunting hard enough or I'm not going after enough bulls. Um, why I'd like to think I have it figured out, um, I get fooled just as many times as I don't. Um, with that said, our strategies work a lot of the times too. Um, you know, there for a couple of years, um, we were calling in, you know, seven to eight out of the ten bulls that we were trying to call in. We were having fairly good success. In other words, we could get a shot or some of those things, but we were getting those bulls within bow range um, more times than not. Yeah. Um, that's, tell me what you think about this statement. Mule deer hunting is like chess and elk hunting is like checkers. Have you heard that before? I have, and uh, so, and, and I'm, I know you have a lot of mule deer uh, hunters that follow the podcast, and this is not an insult. This is my own preference. I've had it fairly good mule deer hunting. Um, for me, you know, running the glass, and it, it, I would almost say it's the opposite, um, but I don't archery deer hunt. Like, growing up deer hunting with a rifle is just how it was, and it's one of those things I haven't broke from yet. So I'm pretty fortunate I hunt deer um, in November almost exclusively with a rifle in my hand. So, you know, cheating or whatever it is, where elk, there's a lot more strategy involved. Um, and so, yeah, taking taking that quote, I'm, I'm having to think about it a little bit. Um, the deer have been fairly straightforward. I, you know, do a ton of glass and get into some really good basins, some good areas, glass them, and then, you know, let them bed down and go shoot them typically. Um, where, where elk hunting for me is, you know, do this call they go over this ridge now i got a circle in front of them and so to me it almost seems um chess would be more like art cutting for me yeah you know that's that's kind of what i found too um and and the reason i i think that is you know if you think of all the interactions you've had with an elk calling you know and, and again we're talking we're talking calling elk in september um yep. the game plan from start to finish you know whatever from sun up to say you kill a bull at you know 10 30 the game plan at that at any given second changes what seems like a hundred times yeah you know it's like okay he's doing this now we're going to do this strategy well oh this happened now we've got to go here well we've got to do this oh wait shoot that didn't work they went yeah. here we he said this i've got to say this you know and it's just like yeah or or you can't locate one and so the ridge you thought you're going to walk out and get a bull <laughs> and you're going to hunt here you're now three ridges over still walking trying to cut tracks or yeah. or get a bull to answer where and and the way i meal deer hunt is you get to a good vantage point and you let your glass do all the work and so i'm you know most likely going to sit there unless there's just nothing there and then i'll maybe move to a different basin you know but let the glass work, let them bed down, and then, you know, make your plan. And so it's a lot more, um, you know, this is what I'm going to do probably regardless of, of what I see versus on the elk side, I'm, you know, I might spot some right off the bat and have a good idea what the day is going to look like. But if I don't, I don't know where I'm going to end up or, or how far I'm going to walk before I hear a bugle and, and then start the game. Yeah. Talk about um, just kind of jumping into elk calling and elk sounds. Um, maybe just give like a brief overview of, you know, elk sounds that a beginner should understand or start with and kind of what what sounds they should be able to make with a with a call, just just generally here. Okay, yeah. So I get this question a lot. What what do I need to do? Or I get people sending me, you know, I get I get a lot of video clips or sound clips of people bugling like, hey, you know, rate this or that. Um, what, what bugle should I use? 
When I'm out in the woods, I would say my location bugle is what I use 95, maybe 90% of the time. And that's the bugle that I'm going to do over and over and over until I get something to answer. As I walk out a ridge or as I walk along a cat road or as I'm, you know, as I'm walking through the woods um, every 200 yards or every, you know, I, I shouldn't put a distance on it, but every time I get to a new finger ridge or a new, um, you know, kind of a little bowl in the, in the hillside, I'm going to bugle um, to see if something answers from that new location that they may have not heard my last bugle from. And, and what are the, what are the, what are the characteristics of that bugle? Just so, it's it's a really clean high note. You're you're trying to get um, that ear piercing high note. Um, it's most of the time it can be a, a two three note high 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 note, and then you don't you're not adding a lot of growl. You're not adding any chuckles. It's just a real clean high note. And I like to cut it off. At, you know, say two and a half to three seconds. So then I can hear um, really quickly. Some bulls will answer you right away. Um, and if you're still carrying on a long bugle, you may not hear them. So I like to do a two and a half, three second bugle as loud as I can, project it down into the basin or, or wherever I'm trying to get something to respond and then listen. Um, I am a patient hunter. Is that oh, is that sorry? Is that kind of is that relatively? I'm just trying to paint a picture. Is that relatively non-confrontational? Yep, yep. And so all you really um, so is a. a not an immature bull, but say a, a sub-mature bull, you know, that four-and-a-half-year-old type bull, three-and-a-half, four-and-a-half-year-old bull, a lot of times if they're getting their butt beat in the herd, um, you'll hear them. You'll hear these satellite bulls take off on a ridge, and they will beagle every 150 to 200 yards. Um, we had we had the fortune of hunting a special hunt here in, in Washington, and we would hear this daily, and you, could, you knew as soon as it happened, when that bull was just beagling at 9.30 or 10 o'clock in the morning, heading up a ridge, and then he would go up to the top, the main ridge, go over one finger, and then he'd start beagling back down. And then, it, I mean, to a T, he was like zigzagging the entire ridge. Um, so that that bull is just literally trying to get something to answer, trying to find a cow um, that may be willing to break off the herd, something to answer, um, you know. And, and so that's what we're trying to, to, I guess, mimic when we're letting out locator bugles. We're just trying to get it. And a lot of times the herd bull may not even answer us. It may be one of that herd bull's satellite bulls the answers, but the nice thing about getting that response in September is it's game on. You know, if, if anything answers me, there's most likely a herd down there somewhere or a herd bull or that satellite just, you know, he may be by himself, but at least answered. Um, and then it, it really comes down to everybody's uh, personal goal on what they want for that season. You know, if, if you're chasing herd bulls and you may not go after that bull, but, um, you know, any answer is a good answer. And a lot of times in September, I will assume if I got an answer, there is a herd somewhere in close proximity. Um, to whatever bugle, whether I can tell it's a small bull or a big bull, um, we're typically going to dive off after him. Do you judge a bull by his bugle? Yes. Yeah, so, in my in in my opinion, my experience, um, a big bull can sound small, a small bull can sound small, mm-hmm. but a small bull can't sound big. So even you may mistake. I mean, you may think you heard a, uh, a small bull, um, but it could be you know, a larger, more mature bull that just doesn't sound as good as the big ones, but the, when we're like on a special hunt, when when you know, we're after something more special than um, you know than, than anything we take on over the counter tag, we'll probably we don't want to waste energy, and there's a fairly high bull to, to cow ratio. We will only chase big bugles on that. Now I'm not going to lie, we may screw that. You know, we may have screwed up a lot on that hunt where we maybe we should have chased bugles. Um, but we, we usually chase the bigger sounding bugles just because most of the time that won't let us down. Yeah. 
um, on a on a over the counter hunt or a uh, you know public land type hunt, um, we're typically chasing most bugles and we're going to see what we got. Um, you know we're not as we're not as picky. We're not you know the first the first somewhat mature five point um, or six point is most likely you know good enough. And and the group we hunt in, if not, you're going to go to the back of the line because you know there's there's some guys behind you there that are on the hunter helping you out that are you know wanting to fill their tag. And and so d- describe again, trying to paint a picture here for for maybe someone just getting into this. Try and describe what a more mature sounding bugle would sound like compared to a younger bugle. I mean, it's it's probably obvious to us, but yeah. So um, just some of the things is depth. Um, you know, anybody that knows speakers, there's bass. Um, you get that real guttural depth that a small bull just can't do because of his chest cavity, the size of his, his chest. So you get a real deep um, sound. Um, you'll get you'll get a lot more rasp. Uh, a younger bull typically seems to be more of a squilly, clean, um, a really clean bugle, a high pitched. Um, they can't seem to kind of finish the bugle right. The last thing, and um, it, it's grunts and chuckles. A big bull will have a big, deep, knocking grunt. Um, where you know a lot of times a little bull when they try to grunt or chuckle it's really really knocky kind of high pitch and it just doesn't have that same depth. Yeah. Um, the other thing is uh, the last thing that we kind of judge is the roar or just that um, you know for humans we try to do a lip ball to mimic the sound but they just get this big nasty rasp that kind of carries through their entire bugle where the small bull doesn't seem to be able to do that. So those are just kind of the four indicators as we're trying to judge off of a ridge top, we can't see these things, but we're trying to make a determination on, on what we think is down there. Right. Um, depth, um, rasp, you know, your, your chuckles, um, and then just kind of the, the, the overall nastiness of the beagle, I guess. Um, I, hey, I know exactly what you're talking about and I'm getting excited over here. Just, think, <laughs> just thinking about it. <laughs> okay. So you got a location bugle and then we, um, any other, any other bull bull sounds that you recommend for a beginner to know or understand? So, and then we'll, we'll make, so when we do locate a bull, um, we get the wind right, we check the wind, we try to figure out our plan of attack to get in close to this bull. When I get in close, whether it's 150, 100 yards of a bull, um, I will also use a, a challenge bugle. Fall. I'll, I'll typically estrus wine, which is a cow sound we'll talk about here in just a second, um, but then I'll follow it immediately with a, a challenge bugle. And what that is, is we add some growl with our throat. Um, we add we add some voice inflection back into the middle of the bugle. Um, so instead of a, a perfect, you know, two or three note high note, um, you're going to get a lot more rasp. But we're trying to, to and we're trying to sound like the biggest, baddest bull in the woods at that point. And I'll typically throw four or five grunts on the end just to kind of add to the emotion um, of that bugle. Yeah, not so not, is, not only sounding like the biggest bull, but you're sounding like a pissed off bull, honestly. Yeah, yeah. The temperatures temperatures high, and so as I mentioned, we we cow call first typically on this scenario, and then we bugle afterwards. I'm trying to paint a picture. You know, is, is these elk going bed down and kind of spread out, um, or as they feed? That bull's got a lot of work trying to keep all these cows, you know, rounded up or herded up. Well, a lot of times these cows get off on the edge or they bed down 60, 70 yards away from them. We're trying to paint the picture that maybe one of his cows that came into estrus, um, and now there's a bull that's basically going to tend to her. 
Um, so that's that's kind of in my mind what I'm I'm trying to tell that elk. And I that, I there's think there's that. and I think there's one key thing there that you that you mentioned um, that I think's the key to that whole thing working with a challenge bugle, and that is inside that 150 yards or inside yep. that inside that red zone i mean t- talk briefly about how the distance of that matters and why it matters so the analogy in my seminars and stuff i always use the analogy of uh, you know whether it's a restaurant or a bar say <laughs> you and your wife or you and your girlfriend are in the back corner of the bar um, or the restaurant eating dinner and somebody walks through the door and yells at you hey mister i'm coming over there to whip you or I'm coming over to steal your, your girl, it, but there's a back door right next to you, right? So you just ran out the back door. They, they didn't give you, a, you know, you had the ability kind of to fight flight. Well, I, I was able to choose flight. Um, that walks in that restaurant and literally comes up to my table because I'm not expecting anything different until that point. And he's at my table and yells at me, hey, she's coming with me. You're now left with not a whole lot of, uh, you know, unless you're, unless you're just a coward, mm-hmm. you're going to, you know, let him take her. You're basically stuck with the fight response at that point. You don't have, you know, flight is no longer an option. And so that's kind of the analogy I relate to. If that bull has no clue I got him within his bubble and I scream in his face at that point, you've basically, um, you know, elicited that fight or flight. Those, those elk are trying to, to, to either make love or uh, survive. And at that point, they're, they're thinking about, you know, procreation. Um, and, and you're taking that opportunity from him. And so that's, uh, that analogy is why we try to get inside of that bubble. Yeah. He doesn't, uh, to him, the risk probably isn't worth, you know, the, the, yeah. the reward of possibly one cow or, or he doesn't really take you serious, um, you know, from, from too far out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that kind of runs, not to, not to go off on my own tangent here, but that kind of runs into one of the biggest mistakes in my opinion. Uh, matter of fact, the biggest mistake, in my opinion, of, of people trying to call elk um, is, is you locate a bull or he's beagling on his own, and you're going to you know, toot your horn or toot your beagle tube the whole way into him. Um, so you basically, you're announcing the whole way, hey, I'm coming, hey, I'm coming, hey, I'm coming, as you get closer. And a lot of times, one of the responses I get um, a lot of times in email after season or during season is like, hey, I'm chasing these bulls, but I just can't catch up to them. They're always staying 300 yards ahead of me or 350 yards ahead of me, and you start to ask these questions, well, um, don't get me wrong, I love to hear bulls beagle, and I love to hear them respond to my beagle, but when you call your whole way in, you have basically given that bull the ability to not, you know, be non-confrontational and just stay away from you. Um, so my, my advice is once you locate him, if you've got, you know, and a deep canyon is it's the best for me because I know about where he's sitting at on uh, you know, on the ridge or where he's out on the canyon. You know, some of the flat countries are a little tougher because I'm having to guess. Um, big timber sometimes tough because you're trying to guess where that those elk are sitting. Um, but once I got a good idea, I will try to go silent and get in as close as possible and then use um, things like the wind. If the wind's right, uh, more times than not, I will start to smell those elk when I'm getting close. Mm-hmm. Um, so I start to use things like that to my advantage. If I did everything else right, I will smell them. Um, I'll start to pick up tracks a lot of times. Um, you know, with, without making uh, a sound, ideally that bull will keep bugling on his own as I make my approach, and then I'll know exactly where he's at. And you mentioned coming in silent, um, but I, I'll bet if I ask you to talk about talk about the noise that you can make when you're moving in on elk, um, and and how it's not always silent. Oh, and that's uh, I I would tell a joke on myself. My dad is as I was learning to elk hunt. You know, we were rifle hunters and. Um, they hunted in, in white tennis shoes, 
um, because they could fill sticks and stuff under their feet, and they could basically be silent in the woods. Um, my dad told me archery elk hunting was perfect for me once he figured out that I could make all kinds of noise because I was never quiet. Um, so it's, we do, we make a ton of noise and I think elk expect other elk to make noise. And so it's a, it's an awesome thing. And, and alongside the calling, we've given the two bull sounds, um, anybody that's, that's watched a bull get called in, anybody that's did themselves, um, they will, you'll watch a bull multiple times on a call and, you know, pick the, pick the 10 foot fir tree out and, and destroy it or pick the alder out and destroy it and stomp his feet and, you know, pick up logs and tip them over with his horns. And um, if we're trying to mimic that, we do the same thing. So there's many, you know, 95% of the calling, somebody in, in my group, whether it's a cameraman, the caller or the shooter, they've got a stick in their hand, a big old tube in the other, you know, or, or a multiple. And we're trying to make noise and, and uh, you know, smash big sticks and smash um, dead limbs and uh, make as much racket as we can to, to paint that picture. And, and a lot of times that, that noise is what we use to finish off the calling. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, I was going to say, uh, <clears throat> as long as it's not, as long as it's an organic noise. And what I mean by that is, you know, you, you obviously, you got to be aware of, you know, uh, I don't know, Cordura from your backpack, you know, sliding, yeah. sliding across a branch or your metal, yeah. metal canteen can't be slamming into the, but as long as it's, you know, like you said, uh, twigs breaking and, you know, branches hitting limbs, that's, it's almost expected and can, and can really change, uh, the picture that you're painting, I think. Yeah. Yep. Yep. We use it all the time. So back real quick to the, to the, you kind of mentioned, uh, calling in a herd bull with a, um, a challenge bugle. Is that your, is that your go-to, you know, if, if you've got a, a big bull middle of September that, you know, whatever, 10th to the 20th and it's a, it's the middle of the rut and he's got multiple cows. I mean, is that your go-to tactic? Is it a challenge? Yeah. Bugle? In my opinion, it's, it, there are other, there are a lot of ways to do it and, and there's proven guys, um, you know, killers out there. The way that I like to do it because it's the most exciting, exciting, um, you know, fired up bull. And a lot of times it's tough to pull that bull away from his cows. You know, those cows during the middle of September are coming in, you know, every day, multiple cows are coming in every day. Um, he's, he's very reluctant to leave them for, you know, I, I think the time you want to kill that bull is in his bed. Um, when he goes to bed, uh, you know, feeding is going to be very tough. And when you do, you're going to have to get very, very close to him and use a challenge beagle. So that's, that's my strategy. Um, in my opinion, that bull and you know, that herd bull in the middle of the rut is probably the toughest to kill. And uh, as much as it hurts to say, if I was going to kill him in the morning or maybe at night, um, no calls may be my best option. Um, you know, just just sneaking in on him may be more advantageous. No, I think when he gets to his bed is when you could go back to calls and, and get him fired up. Do you think that it might be easier to call in those big herd bulls earlier in September, like the 1st through the 10th, maybe, before they really yep. cow up? 1st through the 12th, and then, um, you know, getting towards the end of September. It depends on where you're at around here, um, but, you know, September 25th to, you know, middle of October, I think you can have a better chance of calling those bigger bulls in, but there's that time between the 10th and the 25th where, it just seems to be tough sometimes to get those bulls to pull away. Um, and we're not too picky on it doesn't have to be the giant herd bull. So what we typically will do is we'll go try to target some um, fairly mature satellite bulls because they're a lot easier to call in. Yeah. 
Um, talk about the importance. So we're, we're making these calls, but talk about the importance of your setup and, uh, you know, with just, just the simple setup of, of a, a shooter and a caller. And, and we're, again, we're, we're kind of, uh, speaking archery season during September, but yeah. talk, talk about the importance of a setup and, so and a couple things to look for. Yeah, it's huge. So first, very first thing before we ever do get set up is don't change what the elk are wanting to do. If you didn't exist, if you were a fly on the wall and these elk were going to live, um, what would they be doing if you didn't interrupt? So I'm not, I don't think to call them back, so to speak. If they're traveling, you know, um, up a ridge, I want to be up the ridge from them and let them walk into me. Don't. Now, I love to call elk where they don't want to be. It's, it's easier, and if my goal is not to tag, I'm going to try to get in front of them. Um, and let them do what they want. Now, set up. When I set up, um, I hear so many stories about bulls hanging up or not getting a shot. Um, two things that I like to use when I set up um, to my advantage is terrain um, breaks and then vegetation breaks. Um, anywhere where you get a switch from big timber to brush or um, a steep side slope where it flattens out into a bench. Um, if I'm calling the bull off of those, I want to be within shooting range of those uh, you know, topographic features. Um, so if I'm calling the bull up the hill for some reason um, and, and he's going to come up the hill and then he's going to hit like the plateau that I'm set up on, I don't want to be 100 yards from that, that point. I want to be 30 yards because most likely when he gets to that flat, he's going to sit there and beagle a couple times and then turn back around. Yeah. Same with brush. If, if I'm hunting you know, in a more wide open meadow and uh, there's you know, timber or brush around it, I don't want to be 100 yards from any of those lines. I want to be within 30 yards of that that line where the brush is and where the, the meadow is or where the timber breaks into the, into the brush. Um, I'm also trying to figure out multiple shooting lanes um, on where that bull, uh, you know, potentially will come from. Now, what we do like to do as far as wind, so assume we got the wind right. Um, the, we don't have a whole lot of control. If you think about that bull, he's going to come in head on, right, if the, if the wind's perfect. You, you know, he may come in left, he may come in right, but we're going to assume that he can't get wind on you and he's going to come straight in. Now, if we, if we let the wind hit us at a slight angle, say if it's hitting my right cheekbone, so if it's 20 degrees off to my right, I now have a very good idea that this bull will try to go to my left as I'm looking towards him and try to get wind on me. So as we, as we do that, don't set up to the wind perfect all the time necessarily, if you can, if the setup allows for it. Use the wind to your advantage almost like a steering wheel a little bit um, the same with your collar. If, if the wind's blowing slightly right to left, if you set that collar up behind you and down to the right or, you know, towards your right, he will now steer that bull right into the shooter's position. Um, and so we use those wind tactics a lot when we're set up, um, trying to get that bull to brush broadside uh, by the shooter's location instead of having to take a frontal shot um, when that bull comes head on. Yeah, and, you know, we I always used to think of it as um, – kind of like a three a three point pendulum or whatever um with the the collar the shooter and the bull and you kind of as the collar you know you kind of always had to keep swinging around um the i i think what you bring up is a good point and i don't know if this is making sense to people but there's kind of a fourth dynamic there with the wind um you know because not only does the collar and, and, and again, um, for, for those that haven't called elk, that collar, you're, you're almost working up a sweat usually, um, 
swinging back and forth because that that shooter's out in front and he's kind of not pinned down necessarily in fact if he's doing it right he's not going to be necessarily in sight but but he's he's kind of where he is um especially yeah. as that bull gets closer and so that that it seems like when we're calling man you're just back there running you know half circle behind the the shooter depending on where that bull's moving to yeah. and and then that that wind i think is a good point that you make like there's a there's kind of a fourth uh variable there that the, the caller has to keep in mind and say okay you know even though the shooter's here right now and the bull's here and if the wind was blowing right in our face he would probably be set up perfect but that bull's probably going to swing you know 20 20 yards this way on that side of him or, or whatever you just kind of always have to be painting that picture of those of those four things yeah um yourself the shooter the bull uh, and then relative to the wind um and man see back to that chest thing like it's <laughs> if you're doing it right it's just so much fun like it's so intense and you just yeah. and you're playing you're the playing off the feeding off the bull and it just doesn't get any better but talk yeah. talk about um maybe maybe tell a story like the closest bull that you've ever called in or maybe the most intense um that you can think of story of just calling a bull like you know just a, a good story okay yeah so Two of them come to mind. Um, the one that we actually have a, a YouTube video is a, my 2014 Idaho bull. Um, we, had, we had just showed up the night before I bought my tag at like 9.30, 9.45 at night, basically right before the gas station closed. I grabbed my, my Idaho elk tag, and, and we didn't really know where we were going. Um, so we go up there, we hunt, we get a couple of beagles, and then finally we get a, another bull to beagle down below us, and it's in Idaho brush country. And... Uh, Everything we knew, everything was going to be tight. Um, we got in a, a battle with this bull. We we reset up. Um, that's something we didn't talk about on the setup. If if the first setup fails, don't you know? Don't be afraid to reset up or reset up and close the distance. Um, trying to get inside that bubble. So we reset up multiple times um, on this bull. Well, in my last setup, we we kind of got ourselves into a we pigeonholed ourselves into a spot to set up. We got to a an opening. And we realized we had about eight yards in two little directions to shoot, and everything else was 10-foot-high uh, brush. And I look at my buddy Charlie, who's a pretty accomplished elk hunter, and I'm like, uh, this is not good, but there's the only other options are worse. Um, and so we set up there. Um, he started, he answered back. We get him going, and you can hear him, um, you know, we say break. When you finally hear you can feel or you sense that the bolt broke to your call basically and he's he's coming at that point he's he's on his way um it, it was the craziest thing because i could not see anything all i could do was hear him breaking sticks as he got close and the, the 10 foot pile of brush finally i could see a horn tip um coming out to the right and this is after probably a, an hour and a half calling battle and uh four or five different setups um he would answer a bugle and then he wouldn't answer a bugle, and then he'd answer one of my cow calls. And then, um, so it, it was one of those, it was a bull, just as I mentioned earlier, he was running a creek bottom. He basically located his whole way up, and we had to base, our job was to go down there and intercept him and try to, um, it would have been, I think, easier to call him in if we could have got in front of him, but we had kind of played the cat and mouse game we got behind him. Um, so we got him all worked up, finally got in close, and he had came around the pile of brush to our right, um, he had no clue we were there and basically walked right into my arrow. I think I let the arrow go at like five yards um, on a on a quarter two shot. 
Um, but I, was, I knew I was going to be able to get the arrow in front of the leg bone and then come out behind his opposite uh, front shoulder yeah. um, and, and made a perfect shot. But that was the most intense. Um, the funny thing is I took a still shot out of the video, and thank God he was five yards away because I was so caught up in the moment that my bubble on my, on my bow was cranked all the way over to one side. Nothing's level. Um, but, but thankfully it was close enough that it didn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then one other time, uh, I called a bull in, um, to, to about seven yards from my buddy and, uh, we got really close to the herd on that one, um, did that calling sequence and literally put our beagle tubes down and he came right in. The one problem is my buddy who I was actually calling this bull in for the, the who was supposed to be the shooter. Um, the bull walked about three yards from him and was looking him right you know, he had kind of tucked his eyes under his brim of his hat and wouldn't make eye contact with the bull. Well, I was about eight yards off to his right, eight yards from the bull, but maybe six yards off of my buddy's right. And that bull sat there for two and a half minutes. And you, you know, at that, at that distance, you're watching them like smell. You can watch, you know, every, every time their nose would, would move, you know, are they picking up scent? What's going on? Is he going to get nervous and barrel out of here? Or is he going to slowly walk away? Um, well, it about, Two minutes into the standoff, he finally kind of looked over his right shoulder um, for the cows. My buddy was so pinned down, he couldn't draw. I was able to knock, pick my bow up, knock an arrow, and I was able to shoot that bull at eight yards. Um, but those, I mean, it was just, it's just fun to be that close. And, and you know, I, I'm a, I love hunting, but it, it, sometimes it's just cool to get those animals that close and get to spend, you know, two minutes or two and a half minutes just watching, you know, what was going through his head and watching him at that distance. Um as he stared a hole through my buddy. When you, uh, when you have those, those experiences where they get super close to the shooter like that, what would you say is the average distance behind you that the caller is set up typically? So we, we do a lot of two men and the second man is usually the cameraman. And so I think we actually hurt ourselves sometimes on our, our calling setup. So ideally I, I want to be in eye contact with my caller. Um, and then when we think about that bubble, um, as we mentioned before, you know, trying to get within 100 and 150, if you send your caller back 75 yards, as far as the bull you're trying to call into, that is the elk that's supposed to be the threat, right? So if you can only sneak the shooter into 75 yards, but then you send the caller back 75 yards, your threat's now 150 yards. So you're not much of a threat as if... So that's one thing we kind of play in and we kind of take the temperature of the bull. Like, can we afford to set the collar up back there. But at least I want to be in eye contact um, with them just because the shooter a lot of times can see stuff that the caller can't. And we want to, you know, give the slit your throat sign, you know, stop calling, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the, the hand to your mouth, like go ahead and keep bugling sign. Um, but you know, we like to be, I would say, 25 to 30 yards. But the reality is a lot of times that, that cameraman's five or 10 yards behind at most. Yeah. Um, and then one of us too, whether it's the shooter or the caller is doing the calling. And that's really why we want that wind off to a side slightly, um, to help get a broadside shot. Otherwise, if the wind was perfect on my nose, you know, right off the point, um, we're going to, we're probably going to be stuck with a, a frontal shot. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> there was, a, uh, something just escaped my mind. I was going to ask you about, um, Oh, talk, talk about, um, just, just the visual aspect of, of, you know, calling a bull in and, and the importance of a caller being, uh, 
you know, kind of out of sight, um, and, and what those bulls will look for and what they'll do if, uh, you know, if they, you know, that, that whole aspect of, of, uh, you know, a, a bull knows where a sound's coming from and kind of what the caller has to do to, to keep that from busting the situation. Yeah. So I, I, when I started to learn this, um, there were times where, you know, I'd call once, I didn't know what I was doing yet. So I would call once or twice and be quiet. And, I was amazed at how sometimes these bulls would close three or 400 yards and know exactly to, you know, to the, to the pin, uh, you know, drop of where I was at from that one or two sounds. Um, I think the same thing, you know, happens the majority of the time is that bull, they're a lot better at judging where you're at um, than, than we are of where they're at. And so when that bull gets to a spot where he thinks he should be able to see where the shooter's at, um, that's where we get those hangups and we want to be, we want our shooter to be within that distance of, of being within shooting range. Um, because he expects to be able to see that cow or bull that's making these sounds, um, when he gets to certain spots, um, he knows, and that's why a lot of times they'll continue to call their way in or when they do hold up, they may bugle one or two more times or make some noise. Um, they're basically, you know, given that elk the ability to show themselves or to, you know, if it's a cow to, to come to him, um, you know, or there, there are times when you get that bull's temperature turned so high, um, he comes, you know, smoking around the corner and, you know, he's got fire in his eyes. Um, he may walk right into the collar um, without everything. So I think it really depends on the temperament of the bull um, that you're calling in. And that's where, you know, the, the only consistency in elk hunting is there is no consistency sometimes um, comes into play. You know, elk, you know, that we, elk from day one may do this and then the elk from day two you're you're ready to you know set up and and uh you know kill what elk one taught you and then he does something completely different and you're like all right now you got two examples and then day three you know or or call setup number three um that elk may do something completely different again and so it's just it's one of those things where we're always learning and and i think every scenario is uh, a little bit different yeah, I think, you know, maybe maybe the only constant in all of that is um, the, the type of hunt that you're on, meaning, um, you know, an over-the-counter Colorado elk archery tag that gets hunted and called, you know, by hundreds of guys every year. Uh, the bulls are just going to react differently than, yeah. than, say, the bulls that we've hunted here in Nevada a few times um, that – you know, the bull to cow ratios through the roof, they're super limited amount of tags. Um, they rarely get called to, you know, if ever in their whole lives until that point or whatever. Um, yeah. you know, and, and like you said, some, sometimes those bulls, a hot bull, a big bull with no cows. I mean, he might, we've had him walk, you know, right on top of us. Like you're saying, you know, even in Utah too, too close almost, you know? Yeah. But yeah, you just you just kind of have to gauge the situation with uh, I think what type of unit you're in. But yeah, um, sure. I want to just you know we we need to talk about cow sounds. Um, and so you know back to the kind of the beginning beginner caller. Um, just briefly touch on um, cow sounds. You know the the basic sounds and kind of what they mean and and uh, and and how you use them maybe. Okay, yeah, so the, the cow call, we do social mews, use just your standard cow mew, it's just your cow-to-cow communication, um, you know, just basically herd talk, you know, cows within the herd talking to their calves. Um, I do use a calf call occasionally. Um, calves are extremely noisy, 
and a lot of times we'll give the herd away. And so there may be times where, you know, if I've got fresh tracks or I maybe could smell elk where I don't want to necessarily rip off a bugle because I don't really know if they're very close, uh, I may let a, a calf call or a, a, a mew in that case um, just to see if I can get something to respond before I rip off a bugle. Um, so that's just your, your typical standard cow call. Um, when I get in close, as we're trying to paint that picture um, of a cow that's starting to enter in or get very close, I start to do some, some estrus lines. It's more of a wavy. It goes high, low, high, low, and you, you're kind of adding some drawn-out emotion into that call. Um, and so those are really the three um, cow calls I use, uh, you know, as far as hunting goes. There's, there's a lot more we make, you know, whether it's for, for competition calling or stage calling, but uh, I'm more concerned with hunting, and I, I basically reduce it down to those three specific cow calls is really what we use. And and do those cows maybe different from the bulls? Do those cows um, chirp and talk like that all year, or is it just a, a September rut thing? They do. They they talk all year. Um, and my wife killed her bull last year on October 29th, and there was a herd of about 40 cows with the bull that she ended up killing. And when they were coming out of the timber up into the up a draw, um, they. You know, they weren't really rutting. There may have been a few cows, but there was so much talk because the herd came out in about three different batches. And I would, I don't know how many were calling, but I wouldn't be surprised if all 40 elk weren't talking at one time. It was just the most crazy, um, you know, cow communication I've ever heard. And it was almost November. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's why we, um, you know, we, we seem to use a cow call just, you know, especially, um, excuse me, especially in thicker timber. Um, and, and we'll just use it when we don't even know necessarily that there's elk, you know, we're not chasing a bugle or anything like that. We might just be working through a a dark timber hillside, North facing hillside or something. And, and, and particularly I like to use that when maybe I accidentally crack a branch or make a sound and then just, you know, if something was close enough to listen to that, just spout off a couple of uh, cow chirps because yeah. it's it's the most common elk sound that's made all year round. You know that's how those cows and yeah. calves communicate. And it's a, it's not for sure, but it, it is definitely an insurance you know policy to, to to all right. Maybe something will answer me before I you know continue another hundred yards and walk into them. Yeah. You know because because most of the time those things are you know they're going to spot you before you spot them. So it's like all right, I'll give you one more chance to answer me before I screw this up, sort of a, you know, cow call, and, and uh, just trying to trying to help yourself out if, if you do get something to respond versus running into them. Perfect. And then the last thing on calling, and I think this is super important um, when you're hunting elk, is talk about um, sound that you will make after maybe a bull uh, blows out or, or buggers out and is trotting off maybe he got a whiff of you maybe he saw you move and draw your bow is there a sound that you use at that point um you know and and how does that work with that that bull uh, as he's trotting away it it really depends on i i would like to be able to see him to see you know assuming he's sprinting out of there and he knows something's wrong i may be very hesitant to cow call or do any calling at that point because i don't want him to associate um the smell or the sight or the sound that he just seen um, with a cow, because he knows now at that point that there's not a real elk, um, you know, in that location. And so I don't want to do any more educating uh, of that elk. Now, if he, 
if he just trots off or if he heard a noise and it made it do it, and I'm positive the wind didn't swirl, um, I may be willing to call and try to stop him. But we have did, we have did that in the past. Um, I'm just I'm really cautious that if that's a bull I want to kill or if I'm going to keep hunting the area, um, I just feel that, that there's a chance of educating him, especially um, you know if, if I if I know the wind swirled or I hit my you know if I felt it hit the back of my neck and then he busts. I really don't want to associate any elk calling with that smell um, that he just got, and so it, it's it's kind of on a case by case basis. If if he does trot, I'll probably do two or three excited cow calls and try to get him to stop and get reinterested um, in that. If I think I can save it, Is that your other podcast calling you? <laughs> no, I don't know who's phone me. Hold on one. <laughs> if that's if that's you, Cody, I'm already talking to Jason, so move move on to the next guy. <laughs> All right, got that quieted down now. Yeah, no worries. Um, yeah, you know we can. I I, I want to get into something here just as we kind of wrap up. Um, so you got you Phelps game calls. You guys specialize in mouth uh, reads or open, you know, kind of diaphragm reads. I am horrible at these open mouth uh, or these these mouth diaphragm reads i tried years ago i picked one up and you know everybody says like oh put one in your mouth and just drive around in the truck and what i couldn't figure it out and i'm not a, i'm not, I, I guess i'm embarrassed but i'm i shouldn't be embarrassed to say that but i have i've been just a a read you know like a an open read uh, or yep. you know even when i first started just a hoochie mama you know or whatever um and then some sort of bugle but but here's my i am determined to figure out an a mouth diaphragm this year for one one strategic reason um i have to use my hands to blow on any of those other calls yep. i i can't be by myself not not that i'm usually by myself but i can't be at full draw and have a bull maybe see me move or draw my bow and then be able to stop him with a with a one of those calls in because I, I have to use my hand to put it up to my mouth. So yep. that being said, I want to kind of go through the options that you guys have, and then maybe just walk me through the you know the two minute um, you know suggestion and uh, and how to of how you would suggest that I kind of figure this out. So yeah. So uh, for for new callers that come to us, I think there's some confusion. You know, they say get a somebody recommends it or go get a Phelps call. Well, we, we have the, the line we originally started with is, you know, I would say the more traditional flat frame. They're just, it's a, you know, it's a piece of latex stamp between an aluminum frame with tape around it. And there's flat, there's no plates. Um, there's nothing supporting latex above it. If you're a new caller, I highly recommend, um, that you try our amp series. They're, they're going to be way easier to learn. Um, on and the calls grow with you. So a guy like myself or a guy like Dirk Durham, we still don't need anything more out of an elk call. Um, you know that that's going to grow with us. And, and uh, you know, be the nice thing is, is they're a one size fits most. So um, most people can get them to fit up in their palate. They can get a good seal. Um, another thing, if you're a new caller, um, we cut our tape uh, on the bigger side. You know. We, but because the reason is, if you don't give them enough tape and they needed more, you, you can't do that. Versus, if I give you a little more tape on on the outside than is needed, um, you can go ahead and trim the edges of that and get it to fit and seal right. 
Um, so that's another thing to make sure you got your seal really good and the cold's fitting up there. Um, so you're not getting any air leakage, and some of that can cause some some big time frustrations. Yeah, and that um, that I think was was one of my first things that, that I realized with those is my mouth seems to be maybe a little narrower, um, yeah. and and so I would throw those those normal full size um, reeds in, and it just like it was like, you know, going from one side of my teeth to the other almost. It was just like so much in there and it was yeah. almost causing it to ripple and like like you're saying there's no way i was getting a good seal on that and so the only one the only call that i ever and this was years ago that i ever even got a decent sound out of was like a um, primos made a mini sonic dome yep. or something like that that was it was really small but so can i take one of those amp ones and i can cut that and kind of custom fit it yeah the, the one thing you can't change is the frame width which is what really needs to fit up inside your palette but yeah. Our amp is fairly narrow. It, it's not much. Um, it, it's barely bigger than than the mini um, from Primo. So it fits a lot of the guys that used to run the minis. Um, but then what you can do is trim the, the side. I would say the sides of the tape, not necessarily the back of the tape, um, to start with, and then get that thing narrowed up so that it seals and it's not getting pushed down um, by your teeth and creating some weird ripples on the edges. All right. And then, so and you then, guys, you guys make like all these colors. You have a black, a green, a gray, an orange, a white. What do those all mean? And are they are they different things, or is it just an aesthetic? Like, so we we coordinated the colors. They're all different, um, but it was more for an identifier. All the frames are exactly the same. The difference is the latex um, and and the specs that go along, um, and the thickness of the latex. Um, so. Uh, orange is our lightest latex, and it's stretched the loosest, so it makes it's really easy to make a cow calf sound out of it. Um, but due to its latex properties, it's it's kind of hard to make your bigger bull sounds on it. As you start to get into your black and green, which your next calls up, um, start to get a little bit thicker latex, start to stretch a little bit tighter. You're still making great cow sounds, but now you're able to start bigging on them. But you're more of a, a you know a medium sized to, to immature bull. Then as you start to get the heavier latex, like the gray and the white have on them, with a little bit tighter stretch. Now you're getting some deeper sounds um, and, and some bigger sounds out of on the same call. And so really what we're doing is just a change of latex on those amps, and then we use the color to identify them. Um, what's here, which I don't recommend for beginners, even though it kind of seems to be the craze right now and what we're, people are selling the most of, is the Signature Series. Um, I made my perfect call, which is stretched a little bit tighter, Dirk. Um, made his perfect call, which is thicker latex and stretched fairly tight. And then my hunting partner, Charlie, um, made a double, and it stretched a little bit tight. Um, so if somebody was to pick those three signature series calls up as their beginner call, they're going to be very frustrated. And uh, I would highly recommend you start in a black, green, or a gray, um, learn to call, learn how to you know control those easier-to-use calls, and then maybe step up into the signature series. But um, you know, getting into the right call from the beginning could create, you know, save a lot of frustration down the road on trying to learn. Would you recommend carrying multiple uh, reads or just start out with one and kind of have it be a do-all? I, I think um, start out with a couple different ones so you can figure out um, what diaphragm your calling style kind of jives with the best. And then once you get that, then I would say when you go into the woods, just take the call or a couple of the calls that you're the most confident with would be my recommendation. Okay, perfect. Um, so, yeah, a little trial and error up front, but then narrow it down to one. 
um, maybe two, and then you know, just use those only during hunting season. Okay. And then you, uh, you know, you see everyone using a bugle tube. Is that just uh, for a bugle or do you use that for cow sounds? Um, is that something that's 100% necessary or what do you think? For me, it's 100% necessary. If you're a, if you're a heavy cow caller and that's the, the strategy you want to use, you don't necessarily need to use a bugle. Um, I think even the guys that claim you have to cow call bulls in, they're doing their, themselves a huge disservice by not having a bugle tube to locate with. Um, you know, my whole entire hunting strategy revolves around that beagle tube and, and finding something to, to get going. Um, so I would say it's definitely required for bull sounds, and everybody should pack one, um, you know, while you're elk hunting. Okay, so I'm going to pick up maybe a, a black or a green, and then maybe a gray, and then I'm going to figure out... I'm going to figure this out. What, what are, just give like a tip tactic, like, okay, try this, do this, do this as okay, for like so a beginner. Find, the most important thing is put the call up in the roof of your mouth and find wherever it's comfortable. Um, for me, I put the call how I imagine it straight up. It's in the very center of the roof of my mouth. Some guys have a lot better success by running the calls forward as far forward as they can before the, the call starts to come out of their palate. So you get the call where it's comfortable, where you're not gagging on it, and everything seems to feel really good. The next thing you want to do is put your tongue um, down behind your bottom teeth and kind of roll it under. Um, with your tongue kind of pinned there, you then kind of close, you, you close your mouth or say the word huck, and that will kind of set your tongue against that diaphragm. And now, So if you can imagine, you want your tongue to sit as flat as it can, relaxed against that latex. Um, you're then going to create the air coming from your diaphragm, and then by trying to imagine pushing your bottom teeth out with your tongue, that flexing action is what we use to get the higher notes. You're, you're flexing your tongue up into that latex, and you get a higher note, and then as you stop pushing, um, you'll get a lower note. And then you eventually have to learn to coordinate that pressure with air volume going across the reed. Okay. So you blow, you know, just by practicing, once you start to make noises, um, you know, or any noise out of the diaphragm, you start to learn to control that and how the air going across the reed in combination with the pressure creates a high note or a low note. Um, and then once you can start doing that, you speed it up to get the cadence of a cow call, and then you reverse it on the bugle. You're gonna, it's going to require a lot more air, but you'll start kind of loose, and then you'll you know, slowly start to push, apply pressure to the reed, and go up your high notes, hold that high note, and then you know, kind of reverse with, with the pressure. Do you, on a bugle, like uh, you were talking about the grunt, and everyone likes to make a, you know, the biggest, raspiest grunt sound, um, talk about kind of how, how you um, manufacture that with your call and you know, kind of where that's coming from uh, as you produce that sound. Yeah, and, and my one tidbit here is we get a lot of guys that you know, send us video clips, audio clips, and they're, they're trying to master their grant. And I don't, I, I'm fairly honest because I want people to, to learn, but it's not necessary, 100% necessary for, for elk hunting. And I think a lot of guys would be better off spending time um, you know, getting a better high note, a cleaner high note. But the grunts are one of the hardest things to, to uh, you know, kind of master, and it's definitely one of the hardest things to get the sound right. Um, it requires an inhale and an exhale that are both audible. So what you're going to do, just the same as a bugle, you're going to basically load the tube up, blow it from your diaphragm, a big huff of air, um, you know, get your, get your high note out of it, and then you're going to drop it, and you're going to actually throw voice into the tube. 
you know, the sound, it's not really, a vo when we say voice, it's more of a, huh. you know, you're trying to get that, that depth, you're trying to throw um, that sound that you think an elk makes into that. And then you instantly have to inhale through the tube without sucking your diaphragm back down your throat. So you take a big inhale, and then you do it again. And you take a big inhale, and you do it again. And typically that cadence, um, they'll kind of start to reduce in intensity, and they start to shorten up a little bit. Now, how so, is how is that different um, from like a lip ball while the bugle's going on, and how do you make how do you get that sound? So lip ball, I, I recommend everybody practice with altitude up to their mouth first. Um, it's it's literally sputtering your lips. So if you're sitting there as tight as you can put your lips together, but then you force them to sputter, um, you're going to blow on the call like you would normally, but you're going to force that call to go through your sputtering lips into the tube. It won't sound anything like a real lip ball um, until you add it into the tube. This is one of the calls you can't really, you can't really bugle, um, you know, with, without the tube. It, it kind of um, adds all that realism at the end. But you're literally sputtering your lips as tight as you can um, while you blow the, the the diaphragm at the same time. And would you say that's maybe more important than the like a deep grunt or whatever, particularly when you're trying to do? Um, a, like a challenge bugle, are you kind of throwing that in there with the challenge bugle or no? Yeah, I, sometimes I, I like to mimic a lot. So if the bull I'm trying to call in is doing a lip ball um, and that's the best way to match him, I will do it. But if the bull doesn't really have the lip ball, but he's just, you know, he's kind of clean, maybe do, I may just try to do that with some voice inflection out of my throat. Um, so it really just depends on, on uh, you know, what bull I'm calling into. Grunts, in my opinion, um, are fairly important in my style. I think it, it adds that, um, it just kind of turns the temperature up on them. So I like to have that, but I also like the lip ball. So I think they're, you know, I would probably say they're, they're probably equally important. And, um, you know, I use them both fairly often uh, out in the woods. Awesome. Okay. Well, and what I liked about them is they're, you know, I, I don't know. I didn't, I haven't bought these for a long time, but I, I thought they're relatively cheap. They're like seven or eight bucks. So, yeah, you know, it, the, it's, it's unfortunate, you know, trial and error, but the nice thing is, you know, you can try a bunch of them for, you know, not, you know, not much more than 20 bucks. So, yeah. um, figure out what we like. And then based on that, you know, what you do like, we can make maybe some more recommendations in the future, but, um, you know, that way you don't have to try all eight or nine of them we have. You can try three or four and within those three or four, if you like one better than the other, we can make some better recommendations for, yeah. for next time. Perfect. Um, anything else about your calls re relative to the elk stuff? You know, obviously there was, and that was the other thing we mentioned at the first, you guys have a whole line of basically any type of call that you could imagine. Um, but is there anything else about the, particularly the elk calls that, um, people need to know about? No, I mean, I think the, the amps have, uh, you know, they've taken off. They were introduced last year and, um, you know, they, they quickly became a crowd favorite and, uh, they they are, you know, a lot of times my company, and, and I'll be the first one to admit it, we look like a marketing machine, right? We look like the, oh, these guys are great at marketing their calls, but then I don't want to get stuck with that, that stigma um, that, uh, that it's, it's it's just marketing. Um, you know, I love to get feedback, and they truly are good calls. Um, you know, we, we get a ton of feedback from guys that have called forever, and the amp calls are um, they're, they're pretty impressive as far as uh, diaphragms go. Um the Unleashed tube is, is a great tube. It carries a lot of volume. It's, it's fairly heavy walled. Um, so for me, in my style of running ridge tops, um, trying to get a bull to answer, 
Um, I'll take any advantage in volume and, uh, you know, projecting that sound into this bigger tube with a little bit thicker wall than anything else we have out there. Um, you know, hunting, hunting the same spots I have for many years, um, this new tube just reaches out and, and touches them, um, projects that sound really well. And then uh, the only other thing we did this year, we went to an acrylic barreled uh, Easy Estrus. Um, they're, they're selling really well, and they, they've got a really unique sound. And the nice thing is, by, depending on where you put your hand on them, um, we can change that tone up and, and sound like multiple elk on, on one uh, external read. Awesome. Okay, I think we've, uh, man, is, is it September yet? Holy cow. I want to I, I get out of this. Jeez, man, why can't it be like five months long or something like that? But okay, <laughs> exactly. for now we'll just have to settle. We'll go, we'll go through the uh, the fire round quick and then get you out of here. Um, All right. I don't even have to ask this, but I'm going to elk, mule deer, or antelope. Elk. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love mule deer in November, but elk. If you would have said anything other than elk after this conversation, uh, I wouldn't have published this. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, mechanical or fixed blade broadhead? Fixed blade. I don't know if you pick up a rifle ever, but what would be your um, go-to backcountry all-around rifle caliber? So my, uh, I have a gun built that's a seven short action ultra mag. That'll do it. Um, weighs in just barely over eight pounds, um, and it's I love it. What is your dream hunt? Uh, stone sheep. Jeez. Yeah, that would be, uh, is that one of those that's, it's basically just, you just pay for it, right? There's yeah, no, it's, uh, very ex- it's very expensive. Uh, and so I say stone sheep and, uh, I was almost getting ready to say that that might be obtainable to my budget, but right now it's really not. So <laughs> <laughs> in the future, that may be the one where if I ever, you know, put out a bunch of money to go on a hunt, um, it'd probably be for stone sheep. Yeah. Uh, one state, if you could only hunt one state the rest of your life, where would you hunt? Oh man. Just one. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm not going to cheat your answer, but I'm right now I'm tossing it between Montana and Colorado just due to all the over the counter. Um, I would probably end up in Colorado just because of the deer side of it, but mm-hmm. still could over the counter elk hunt every year. And that's, that's ironic. Cause I think the elk hunting seems to be a little bit better across the board in Montana. I know, but I so I've mentioned multiple times I love deer hunting, and so I think I would the deer may actually swing that one a little bit towards uh, Colorado. Just uh, they they both be good. I think uh, over the counter elk in Colorado would be okay too. Are you a guy that if you're going in on a say you're going on a you know two point deer uh, a, a hunt a archery deer hunt in Colorado that took you say two points? Would you also be picking up the over-the-counter elk tag if there was one in that area, or are you just single-minded? From now, from now on, yes. Every year, I was there. I was in Colorado two years ago. Um, stopped by the store to buy a few last things and uh, looked at the looked at the checkout and like I should probably go buy an elk tag. And uh, we were concentrating on mule deer, and sure enough, on day five, I had a three forty bull, <laughs> just a giant, massive, nice six-point, and walked through the meadow. It, 350 yards and there I was with nothing but a deer tag in my pocket <laughs> and so from yes from now on I will always have every tag that I can buy over the counter in my possession see I'm the guy I did that in uh, Wyoming uh, a couple years ago 
we were going deer hunting. My brother had been in there a couple weeks before and seen like eight bears. And I'm like, oh, perfect. I'm picking up an over-the-counter bear tag. Instantly didn't see a bear. We did not see a bear the whole time. That's just how my life goes. Um, yeah, well, that's, that's the same. If I would have bought it, if I would have bought it, okay. Yeah. You would have never seen that bull. Backcountry food item. Favorite backcountry food item? Uh, peanut M&M's. Really? Interesting. I don't know what it is. Like, you get to day three or four, and I look forward to opening up that package of yellow M&M's. <laughs> that's awesome. Okay, um, that's it. I got one more question before we do. Um, where can people find you? Uh, where's the preferred social media? Is that right? Instagram? Yeah, I mean we're we're we try to stay fairly open. Whether it's you know the Phelps Game Calls Facebook page, my personal Facebook page, uh, the Phelps Game Calls Instagram page, um, email, any of those, uh, we, we try to you know respond quickly into everyone. So uh, any of those, um, you know, a lot of times I would say to be honest, social media is probably the fastest um, on getting a response. And as far as your YouTube videos of your hunts, is that typically posted up on Born and Raised? Um, we did we did that one series with Born and Raised, um, but we I have a, a Phelps game called YouTube channel. We don't we've just posted up some of our real quick edits, um, so we do have some video material there. Um, we were on the Montana Lake of Land of the Free last year, which I recommend everybody if, if you're jonesing to get out in September, go check out. Um, but yeah, we, we're kind of scattered on a bunch of different projects there. And then we have our own little, um, page there that we just did our real rough edits. Okay. Perfect. Um, one last yeah. question, but first I want to give you credit for, uh, taking time to come on with me, uh, give you credit for just being a guy that, you know, jumped into what's clearly your passion and, um, you know, produces a product and runs a business in a relatively, I think a, a tough uh, arena to play in. Um, you know, there's, there still is, and there are other, you know, game call companies. And so, uh, you, you stand out and I think that's impressive and give you credit for that. Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate it. I also know that you, Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, and I want to thank, you know, everybody, all of our supporters, you know, or whether it's our customers or the, you know, the other companies that have supported us, you know, I don't think we get the opportunities we've gotten without, um, you know, it's, some of that support so um it's you know a lot of it's just as much them as it is me yeah for sure and then last thing i want to give you credit for i know you're you're a family man um you mentioned right there on your website um you know your wife and kids and so um you know just give you credit for being a family guy and i'm sure that you put them first anytime that you uh as as often as you can so yep yep no it's a it's important you know we, we get wrapped up in this crazy life and uh I make it a point to you know, coach as many of my kids as sports and, uh, you know, uh, make sure that they still know it's about them. So, Awesome. Okay, last question for you, Jason. Why do you hunt the backcountry? Just, um, you know, I grew up hunting um, roads, and, and it became less about, you know, the hunting than it was about getting up earlier or who could drive faster to a landing. And it wasn't until about 10 years ago that um, I wanted something different. I thought, you know, hunting could provide something more. And I learned it all on my own. And it was just that the ability to get away, um, the ability to kind of see, uh, you know, the things that a lot of people don't get to see. And then, 
you know, hunt, hunt animals that aren't necessarily, um, you know, not as pressured animals. And so I, I just, I love everything about it. I love the hike. I love, uh, you know, camping, living off of our back. Um, and, uh, yeah, the whole experience, I guess, I mean, there's not necessarily one thing, but, um, it's a sum of a lot of things. And, uh, you know, sum it up is that, that experience of just, you know, hiking and, uh, you know, uh, that being the only means, you know, everything from the dinners over the campfire and everything I, I love about it. So. Perfect. Jason, thank you for coming on, man. I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Yep. I, I'm sure I'll be calling you uh, in a couple weeks when I can't figure out how to make an elk sound. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll help you out. Okay, appreciate it, man. Have a good night, and uh, look forward to seeing what tags you drew and uh, how your fall turns out. Yeah, you too. Take okay. care. Thanks, Jason. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Finding Backcountry podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and mention it to your friends. But the best thing you can do, leave a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. For notes and links to this and other episodes, please visit findingbackcountry.com.